But as a patient, I did not like that. I wanted people to tell me what was happening. You know, very simple requests, right? This is what we're going to do to you. This is when we're going to do it. This is how it may feel. Here's when you're going to get your results. Very basic, reasonable things that anybody would want to know, and they didn't happen. What does a nurse experience when she's diagnosed with breast cancer and has a journey on the other side of the stethoscope? Let's talk all about it with New York Times bestselling author Teresa Brown right here on episode 375 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is all about you, your personal professional development, the nursing profession, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education ideas, very frequent diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people that I can find anywhere on the planet. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, please consider leaving a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app you use like Spotify. It's really helpful and I'd appreciate it so much if you would consider doing so. And please head over to nursekeith.com to find the show notes for this episode where you can learn all about Teresa Brown and her amazing work. So Teresa, thank you for being back on the show. You were last with us for your first appearance on episode 286, almost 100 episodes ago, and that was September of 2020. And we were, gosh, we were deep into the pandemic at that time. We were about five months in. So the world's a little different now. And I know your world is very different now too. And your new book is called Healing When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. And you write very honestly and grippingly and rawly, if, if Raleigh is a word, <laughs> um, um, not a city, it's, it's, a, it's an adjective or an adverb, actually. Um, I'm speaking to a writer, so I have to, you know, you have a PhD in literature, right? I have to be really careful here. Um, but anyway, I digress. So you have this, this very raw account of this experience of being diagnosed with breast cancer. And I just want to ask you first, how are you? Like, how are you doing? Yeah. Well, Keith, thanks for having me back. Yes, it is very a very different landscape than September of 2020. Uh, thank you. I I am good actually. I'm coming up on five years. This fall will be five years after diagnosis. And in case people don't know this, five years is kind of the magic number. That's when most of the data we have looks at recurrence rates, and it sort of feels like if you make it to five years without a recurrence, you're home free. I mean, of course, it's never that simple with cancer, but you know, I write in, in healing about how I don't feel like I'm a survivor yet, and I wonder if when I hit that five-year mark, maybe then I will feel yeah. like I'm completely out of what I call cancer's long shadow. That would yeah. be nice. Cancer's long shadow. Yeah, I remember that from the book. So survivor has a certain connotation, right? And so do you, do you feel like for some people when they hit that five-year mark, that's where they can take on that, like wear the mantle of survivor? Is that what you're saying? And before that, it's more, it, it's a different 
a different part of the journey? Yeah, well, for me, that was a difficult term for me. And we see it everywhere in the media, right? I'm a cancer survivor. Mm. And it never felt like it fit because I kept having appointments. And then also right now I'm not taking an anti-estrogen drug, but I probably am going to start on a drug called an aromatase inhibitor in a few months. I'm going to be going back to the doctor. So I'm still not getting active treatment, but I feel like I'm in this gray zone of taking medication and the medication is, is not simple. I mean, no medication is ever without a potential for side effects, but you know, this is a medication that can thin my bones and give me joint pain. So um, I, I'm still doing that risk benefit of having been a cancer patient. So I think I felt like I would love to embrace that label survivor, but I I don't feel it yet. Somehow calling myself a cancer patient feels more honest and more accurate as yeah. to how I'm feeling. Yeah, you're not quite there yet. And you're probably right. one day it'll just hit you like, yeah, I'm a survivor, right? It'll just right. feel right at the time. Right. And I think that's the really important thing for clinicians to know that it, it's so different for everyone. And I took care of really sick leukemia patients, bone marrow transplant patients. Mm. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed that I learned how terrifying cancer diagnosis is. And those patients must have felt that so profoundly because these are people who they, they get a phone call that says, Hey, your blood work that we did or your routine physical showed something really troubling and you need to go to the hospital right mm. now. Mm -hmm. But as a nurse, I really didn't understand what they were feeling. And of course you can't go in every day, hundred percent feeling the fear that your patients have, right. Or people would just burn out. Yeah. That wouldn't work. Would it? Right. But what got me to write this book was becoming aware of this empathy gap between the real terror that a lot of patients have. And it, it doesn't have to be just cancer. It could be a heart attack. It could be a serious car accident. It could be uh, asthma attacks that can't be controlled. Mm -hmm. But the real terror that patients have, and as clinicians, we get so wrapped up in our tasks, and we're now working in a system that's become more and more about doing more with less, that ability to see the patient is really getting diminished. It is. It really is. And now a huge part of the premise of your book is that you're a nurse who became a patient, right? I mean, that's right. that's like the core of this incredibly beautiful book. And part one is called Who Am I? And part two is called Nurse Brown MIA. Right. And you have a history of oncology nursing and hospice and some people would think that, oh, you know, makes it easier to become a patient. And that you call it a wee cancer, right? Because you didn't have yes. a, a seriously invasive cancer, but it was cancer nonetheless. And what is it about your nurse identity and being a patient? Like, how did that play out? Like, how would you describe 
what that was like for you to to now become the patient? Yeah, the weirdest form that that took was I suddenly forgot everything I'd ever learned about breast cancer. And mm-hmm. I, I very rarely took care of breast cancer patients unless they were very sick in the hospital or they were on hospice. But very basic things like staging, tumor markers, which I knew I couldn't remember. And to be honest, if I think about them applied to myself, I I still have a hard time drawing up that knowledge. Although I'm sure if I were talking with another patient as a nurse, I would be fine. So that was weird and fascinating and revealing. And, you know, you can imagine just felt very strange. But the other thing I discovered was I'd also been indoctrinated into the system where the idea is being the easy patient. So I have a chapter called The Ideal Patient, where I Mm -hmm. went to my biopsies because people might not know this. A a scan never 100% shows that you have cancer. They have to actually look at tissue from the mass they've seen. And only that definitively says you have cancer. So the radiologist who looked at my ultrasound was pretty sure I had cancer. You have to go to the biopsy for hundred percent. So I go in and I think, all right, I've got this. Be the easy patient, right? And did this for the first biopsy. I had two, it's called a stereotactic biopsy. Did this very weird procedure where you lie on a table that has a hole in it and you stick your breast through the hole and then they raise you up in the air like you're a car in a garage. <laughs> and <laughs> like talk about dehumanizing, right? Yeah. Like you don't even have to explain that. It's just there. Yeah, past the um, wrench. Yeah. Right. And they exactly. And they say, don't move or move one quarter inch this way or that way. And then don't move, don't move, don't move. And I did everything they said. At the end, they complimented me on my amazing patience. And it's pathetic to admit that I I really took that compliment very much to heart. Mm -hmm. Then I had another biopsy, different kind. And by the end of the day, I realized, you know, I don't want to be the ideal patient. I don't like this. And so I suddenly saw the cost to what we expect of patients and nurses who are listening know this healthcare is like a giant assembly line, right? And there are all these different tracks, right? There's the patient track and there's the billing track and there's the procedure track. Mm -hmm. And anyone who puts a wrench in any of those tracks, everything, the whole machine kind of goes, ah, you can't do that. And so we want patients to go along to get along. But as a patient, I did not like that. I wanted people to tell me what was happening. You know, very simple requests, right? this is what we're going to do to you. This is when we're going to do it. This is how it may feel. Here's when you're going to get your results. Hmm. Very basic, reasonable things that anybody would want to know. And they didn't happen. And you were sometimes apoplectic about it. And you were pretty honest about the ways in which you kind of lost it a couple times and you contrast difficult patients with compliant patients and you know the difficult patients like the squeaky wheel right and mm-hmm. a lot of nurses will think of those types of patients and roll their eyes you know mm-hmm. um, but then if you're overly compliant that it's a double-edged sword because everyone thinks you're nice and that you're easy but then you don't get necessarily what you want because you're not squeaky 
and I've been there and that's, that's a hard thing to do. And, and some people will say that, you know, there's this, um, uh, trope that, you know, nurses make the worst patients, but maybe we do, maybe we don't, but some of us can be super difficult and some of us can be compliant just like anybody else. We're a microcosm of the macrocosm, right? Yeah. And <laughs> so you're, you, you go into so many things throughout the course of the book. I mean, it's about your journey, but you also talk about the system as a whole and this, this, you know, we often refer to it as a broken system mm-hmm. and you talk about health disparities and so much. <laughs> so would you characterize the American healthcare system as broken at this point, or how would you encapsulate what your takeaway is about the state of healthcare right now in the American society, you know, at this juncture? That's a really good question. I would parse it a little bit. So for some people, the healthcare system works fabulously. So that's if you have good insurance, right? If you are having a terrible heart attack and you have a hospital nearby that has a cardiac cath lab and they can get you in really quickly, a miracle can be performed where your clot is removed and your heart is almost undamaged. And I'm I'm saying all this because my husband had a very serious heart attack Mm. about a year and a half ago now. And all of that happened. Amazing medical care. I, I can't say enough about how good it was. Me as a nurse standing there watching, just seeing this textbook example of how a heart attack should be handled. I'm so glad he yes. had that experience. Yeah. Yes. Good. And we have really good health insurance. So it cost us almost nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, so if someone interviewed me, right. And that's all I knew, I would say, no, we have the best healthcare system in the world. Right. <laughs> But then you have the people who don't have health insurance and for them, the system isn't, is beyond broken. It's just not available or it's available, but it may bankrupt them. And then, as you mentioned with health, health disparities, people who are black or people who are Latino, often their outcomes are just worse, much worse than yes. for patients who are white. So for them, it's like they're in this alternate system that has had all the structural elements of racism removed from it. But obviously there's still racism because for some reason, a white patient and a black patient go in to get treated for cancer. And the black patient is a lot more likely to die than the white patient. So there's a problem there. Yes, um, humongous problem. Yeah. So yeah. it's like different Americans are living with and using different healthcare systems. And I would say what's really broken and what unites all these threads is we don't see patients as people. We don't see patients as the mission. Mm-hmm. We've come to see making money is the mission. And to illustrate this, I was, I was just reading a blog post about how can admissions be made better? And I thought, okay, this is interesting. And it said, it's the, the patient's first encounter with the system 
And it's also the beginning of the revenue stream. And I thought, oh my God, I can't believe this is now just talked about (laughs) in the same breath. Like this person isn't even pretending that what's going on with the patient and making them feel welcome could be looked at separately from what kind of money are they going to be bringing into the facility. Let's capture this aspect of the revenue stream. Yes. That does feel like a pretty cynical calculus. Um, I mean, of course, you know, healthcare um, facilities need to earn money because that's, we're in a capitalist system and they're not all nonprofit um, or not-for-profit, whatever, however you parse that. But that's, that is a sad statement. And, and revenue is just such a driver, isn't it? It's, it's hard to see from our side, like the, this side of the stethoscope, but as a patient, it can feel pretty devastating when the bills come and when you're worried and you have to make difficult decisions based on money and insurance. Right. And even for me, I know that there are women who, when, when they get a questionable scan that looks like they have cancer, they'll get a biopsy right away. Yeah. But for me, I was told, oh, you're, you're not going to leave the radiology imaging center today without biopsy appointment. So, right. right. And this is one of the moments where you describe, I became apoplectic. Yeah. So I thought, great. I went down, I sat where you were supposed to sit to schedule the biopsy. And I, I know I had tears running down my face. They looked all defeated by life. Um, you know, this was one of the worst days of my life. I think it's fair to say and no one came and no one came. And then a different receptionist came by and said, oh, she leaves at three. You just missed her. Yeah, you just missed her. You you really leaned into that. Yeah. Yes. And I'm not a violent person. I don't imagine hurting people even when I get angry. Mm-hmm. But I was so angry at the indifference in that. And that's a way that the system is broken, that we, we don't have a sense of when people are trying to find out about a cancer diagnosis or any kind of serious diagnosis, it's not okay to just casually make them wait. And it's not okay to kind of say, oh, yeah, that scheduler has gone and nobody else does that. Too bad. And Monday's a holiday. so. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So then I did call back the next day, scheduled my biopsy, but I wonder what if I weren't me? What if I weren't the kind of person who would call? Would I have been quote unquote lost to follow up? And, you know, all these labels we have about who's difficult and who's easy. And I so dislike them, but they really do speak to the priorities of clinicians, right? And and others in the system, right, right, yeah, yeah. Those priorities are, (laughs) yeah. They they say a lot, and it also what also says a lot is you mentioned in the book about um, you're talking about how we label patients and the ways in which, like we said before, compliant and difficult get labeled, and the the ways in which humanity is lost when we start that process and you were, you got angry a bunch of times 
And you even mentioned in the book getting getting kind of reprimanded by someone because of the way you were treating the team or they perceived you were treating the team. Yes. But you were getting pushback in moments of great existential duress. Yeah. And as a hospital nurse, I worked so hard, although I also talk and healing about moments I look back on where I realize, oh, wow, I did really let that patient down. It wasn't my yeah. fault. Yeah. But now I understand so much better what a difference that made to them. But yes, the story you're talking about is my one-year mammogram, which was yes. very anxiety-provoking. And I was part of a study, so I thought that would make me get my results more quickly, but also for some reason, I imagined that they're clued into, oh, this is my one-year mammogram. So I really want the results. So that morning, it was a Friday morning. I emailed the one of the people on the study and said, hey, I just had my one-year mammogram. I'd really like my results today because as you just referred to, it was going to be a three-day weekend. She said, okay, two radiologists are looking at your results and I just need to put them in the computer and then I'll get back to you. So time passed and time passed and time passed and my anxiety level, whether this was rational or not, you know, I think there's a little bit of both in there just started to really go up. And finally mm -hmm. I got an email late afternoon. Oh, we don't have your results. Well, it's not my fault. Something like that, basically Yeah. too bad. Um, and I just got so angry and I had a series yes. of emails back and forth where I said, do your damn job. Yeah. And didn't you in that moment say that's the, that's the worst non-apology I've ever heard. Yes. It yes. Was that the moment? Yeah. I remember yes. that line very clearly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you actually said that and you, you took them to task. And like you said, a few minutes ago, what if you were not you? Like what if English was your second or third language? Or what if you didn't have a PhD in literature and a, a degree in nursing? What if you had a high school education or a third grade education? Um, what then, right? What, right? what would happen to someone in your position? Right, exactly. And I try to acknowledge that as often as I can while I'm telling my story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Or what if I'm someone who just had always been told, well, doctors know best, don't, don't bug them. What if I'm someone, what if I'm black and I'm just used to people in the healthcare system being just sort of subtly unhelpful or mm -hmm. unkind to mm -hmm. me, right? For none of those people are things going to work out and they're going to have to wait an entire weekend for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. And here you are a nurse, doctorally prepared individual, you're white, you know, you're, you're, you have the means to, to push back and to feel like you deserve an answer because you, you know, you do and everyone does and you're able to get an answer, but look what you had to do in order to, to get there. And, you know, one in eight American women are diagnosed with breast cancer in the course right. of their lives. And some people say that number's high because they're tested too frequently. And that's the problem. I mean, 
What do you think about that? How do we parse these these statistics in terms of cancer? And how do you speak to that particular argument, if we call it that? Yes, I used to completely be on that bandwagon. Mm -hmm. I actually even attended a conference where we talked about, we learned about healthcare coverage in the media. And that was one of the big issues that they covered that so many women are tested and a percentage of those women where tumors are found, those tumors would never cause any trouble. And I found the data and the statistics very persuasive. And I thought, okay, I, I, I get this. This is another instance where then becoming a patient completely changed my perspective because it's one thing to say in theory, well, a certain number of these tumors will never become a problem. But the reality is there is no test right now that says definitively whether a tumor will or won't progress. So my tumor was small. It was slow growing. Actually, the shape of it is very positive in terms of not becoming an aggressive cancer and not recurring. But no one can say with 100% certainty, this cancer is fine. We can leave it there and it will not do anything. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Right, right. And so then it becomes not just disingenuous, but also kind of cruel mm -hmm. to have this rhetoric out there about how oh, women are over-tested. Well, once someone has found cancer in your body, you want that cancer out. And one of the big arguments I heard again at the same conference was what's DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma institute, means a cancer that has not left the milk duct, mm -hmm. that the argument was, well, we shouldn't even call this cancer. But I have two friends who had DCIS and they felt like I did. They felt like they had cancer. Yeah. So it's another Miss broken connection between what clinicians are thinking and a, and a sort of intellectual statistical model and then the reality, but also that truth piece that doesn't get put in there. There's no guarantee that your tumor will not, in 20 years, when it's been ignored, become a problem. And also, can you imagine having 20 years of just surveilling this all the time. Yeah. I mean, Having to deal with waiting for that next scan, then getting the right. scan and waiting for the results over a holiday weekend. Yeah. yeah. And I know we do that with prostate cancer, but mm -hmm. prostate cancer is a cancer where watchful waiting is actually can be a clinically appropriate strategy. Um, you know, it's, I'm not a doctor, I do not treat prostate cancer. Anyone listening who's had that diagnosis should talk to their physicians. Yes, of course. Right. But with breast cancer, that strategy is, it's not really justified by our level of clinical knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to unpack with this and with your amazing book, your, your third book, by the way, right? Um, yes. And your you're a New York Times bustling out there for a reason. And that reason is because you're such an incredibly gifted writer. And you've, you know, you've written for the New York Times quite a bit. And you're, you know, the the accolades you receive are 
well, you're, they're well, you're well-deserved. And when we come back from the break, I'd like you to read a little passage from the book, and then I have some other questions for you. So are you up for, for a little bit more? Uh, definitely, Keith. Okay. All right. So hang out with us here on episode 375 of the Nurse Keith Show, and we'll be right back with Teresa Brown. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember, we're here with Teresa Brown, friend of the pod and my friend and colleague. And Teresa, prior to the break, we were talking about disparities and how we say whether something is actually cancer or not. And, you know, everything about this journey that you've written about. And speaking of writing about it, would you do us the honor of reading a passage from the book? I would really appreciate everyone hearing some of this in your own words. Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. This is the prologue to the book. I decided to read this because it pulls you into the book with a bang. I was reading Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay the day I went for my scan. The inside cover of the book is neon pink, not the girlish pink of Disney princesses and bubblegum, but a knowing, winking pink, the color of a bad, as in badass feminist, the kind of person who reads Bad Feminist while waiting for a mammogram. It was a follow-up. I had mentioned it to my husband, Arthur, who was out of town, but no one else. I always got called back. Well, not always, but often. And I'd sweated the need for additional screening enough times that I'd convinced myself there's no value to being anxious in advance. I had a mammogram and an ultrasound, right side only. I waited calmly in the hallway in between the two scans, and then I waited in the ultrasound room after the tech left and before the radiologist came in. I might have wondered why the tech left, but instead I read my neon pink book word by word without knowing what I was reading. A questionable scan merits an on-the-spot reading by an on-site radiologist who came in and redid the ultrasound. She took a long time, which annoyed me, and then, once I considered why she might be slow, scared me. Finally, she said, I see a mass, a mass. I saw her in profile, gray hair pulled back from her face, her eyes focused on the screen. It might seem like she could have said more, but those four words were already too many. I didn't move, speak, or sit up, but I did begin to cry slowly. Tears dribbled out of each eye and slid down the sides of my face as I lay silent on the exam table. I'm a former oncology nurse and a hospice nurse. I knew the importance of letting the doctor finish the scan, that panicking wouldn't help me or her as she took final measurements or did whatever she had to do. I figured I was knowledgeable enough about having cancer because I knew about specific cancers, that I understood cancer patients' feelings because I'd cared for so many, that I'd confronted mortality because I'd had a number of patients die. But I was wrong. Other people's mortality is categorically different from one's own. Actual mortality, which is to say mine, had never before this moment seemed real. Could it be a fibroid adenoma? I blurted out. 
I'd had those before and they're not cancerous. No, she said, gently shaking her head. This looks ugly. She left. And as soon as I heard the door latch, I sat up and sobbed, my whole body shaking. Fear had found me and everything seemed upside down. My nurse self had abandoned me and I had become a patient, not just any kind of patient either, but a cancer patient. The ultrasound tech came back into the room so quietly I didn't hear her, but suddenly her arms were around me. She put her arms around me, a stranger, and said, they can cure this. But that was what I did, comforted strangers. Not even a day had passed since I started my testing. It was still sunny and a little colder than normal for September, but I had changed. The nurse was lost on the bottom, the patient flailing on the top. I was terrified and sad and angry. I was afraid and forlorn and enraged. I was frightened and bereft and irate. And that was just the beginning. It's such a beautiful prologue and it sets the stage for this entire journey. And it's so well written, of course. So thank you for reading that for us. Oh, well, thanks for all the compliments, Keith. It's very nice. Of course. No, I'm, and I'm not, I am not pandering. Um, <laughs> you're, you're wonderful. And, you know, your, your other books are Critical Care, right? A New Nurse mm-hmm. Faces Death, Life, and Everything in Between, which I have on my bookshelf. And your other book, um, I'm trying to find the name of it right now. It's The Shift. That's right. One Nurse, 12 Hours, Four Patients, Lives. That was a New York Times bestseller. Mm-hmm. And th- Critical Care is being used as a textbook in a lot of schools of nursing. And we can hope that some of these lessons that you've learned that you've passed on can be absorbed by nursing students who are entering the profession. Um, What are some of your worries about new nurses coming into the current environment of healthcare, especially with the pandemic where we are right now in April of 2022? Do you have concerns about them? I do have concerns. Mm -hmm. It's a very hard time to go into nursing. And I've given a couple of talks recently to nursing students and they are concerned. Also, it's, it's not just that I bring my concerns in, they are also worried. And the main thing they ask me is about work-life balance. They're afraid of the job taking them over and then burning them out very, very quickly. So the thing they've asked me is, what's the best advice you would give us? And I always say, paradoxically, you have to look out for yourself. You bring your empathy to work. You give all of yourself during those 12 hours, but then you're off and you need that time to be off. We are at a tough spot with U.S. healthcare right now because so many nurses have left the bedside or nurses have left the bedside to become travel nurses, sometimes becoming travel nurses and then returning even to the same job they had, but they're making three to five times as much money. And it has taken healthcare systems a while to understand that if they want to keep their nurses, they're going to need to pay more, not necessarily three to five times as much, but more. 
And also they're going to have to really improve the work environment. They cannot just assume that nurses can be worked and worked and worked. And well, so a nurse quits, you know, a nurse is a nurse is a nurse. There's always going to be another nurse to take their place. More cannon fodder, so to speak. Right, exactly. Now we've reached a place where, no, there may not be another nurse to take that nurse's place. In Mm -hmm. fact, there are a lot of places now that are missing nurses. And so I really want nurses to look out for themselves, uh, talk about bonuses, talk about why am I working next to someone who's making five times as much money as I am? And they don't have to have institutional loyalty. They don't have the memories that I have of where things are, what it's like to work with so-and-so. Not to put down travelers, that's that's not the point. The no. point is that there's a lot of institutional memory that nurses who stay in a specific place have, and that needs to be valued and rewarded by institutions. Yeah. So I have this great quotation that I heard from a, a psychiatrist, I think, who was working with physicians who needed mental health care during COVID, but she said, you don't have to light yourself on fire to keep other people warm. Hmm, that's a good one. It is. Mm. And I think as nurses, we're, we've got the match, right? We're ready. <laughs> we're mm. just ready to yeah. light ourselves on fire. Yeah. Right, right. But it, it doesn't work. You really cannot take care of other people if you have not taken care of yourself. And that was a hard-earned lesson for me as a patient. I had to take a leave from work. I knew that I could not take care of hospice patients while I was worried about dying myself. I felt like a failure for a while for having done that, for needing to take that leave. And yet over the long run, it was so important and really valuable for me to say, I do not have to be superhuman. I do not have to pretend I'm invulnerable. And and really that embrace of my own vulnerability when I did come back to work made me a better nurse. I bet. Yes. And there's there's that aspect of invulnerability that I've talked about on the show a lot and I've written about too of the the hero moniker that's used throughout COVID, which I've been uncomfortable with from the first get-go. And I've been using the term warrior rather than hero because hero implies that they can handle anything, that they're superhuman, right? And, you know, you can bang pots and pans and everything for nurses, which is nice. Um, But hero doesn't quite cut it for me. It's just, it's just, it's like saying they're angels in scrubs, you know, it's like, what does that mean? Right. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that's a hard, that's a hard one for me to, to swallow. And what do you think about the, the hero versus warrior versus human being um, description of a nurse who's working and working to save lives and stem the tide of, let's say, a pandemic. Yeah, the hero label is very problematic. And I, and probably you also, saw many, many nurses on Twitter saying, 
don't call me a hero and mm-hmm. don't give me a pizza lunch. No. Which which nurses listening get it. It's the reward for nurses for almost anything is you get a pizza lunch, which is nice. I like getting free pizza. Who doesn't? Sure. Great. But when you are working so incredibly hard, short staffed, having to be the social support for the patient because they're not allowed to have visitors dealing with a disease that at the start we knew very little about and also had the potential to make nurses and their loved ones incredibly sick. Getting pizza and being called a hero is almost like spitting in the wind, basically. So Mm -hmm. I like warrior and that's very interesting because I talk in healing about Audre Lorde's book, The Cancer Journals. She was a Black lesbian poet, activist who wrote about her own breast cancer diagnosis. And she talks about being a warrior a lot. And I would love it if instead of every breast cancer patient seeing herself in a pink sash or a pink sweatshirt, can imagine herself with a breastplate and a spear. There you go. That works. Um, Yeah, that we're warriors. But I also like that for nurses. Yes. Yeah. And then there's also, you mentioned in the notes you sent me about Susan Sontag and her book, Illnesses Metaphor. And she did not like the notion of a war on cancer because cancer is biology gone wrong. It's part of us. So words are difficult sometimes. And you're a literary person. So words are powerful. And they have they have a huge impact, don't they? Depending what we choose to use and how we use them, they do. And and I just realized too, a hero is always an individual, right? Mm-hmm. Be the hero, mm-hmm. and, and then it became or whoever it happens to be, right? Right, and became healthcare heroes. But yes. still, it's like each person is an individual. But warriors, we think of more as a force, an aggregate, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, just even using hero again is sort of saying it's all on you. It's all on each individual clinician here to do what they can for COVID instead of saying, let's imagine how we could all work together. But yes, you're also right about the cancer metaphors and the war metaphors. And it's funny, I never used those as a nurse when I was talking about patients. And then when I became a patient, I found myself reaching for them. Like I'm going to fight the good fight. And then I would think, what is the matter with me? Why, why am I using this language that is not appropriate because there's no other disease we talk about that way. We don't talk about heart disease that way. We don't talk about asthma that way, diabetes that way, you know, diabetes in some ways is even more pernicious than cancer, right? Mm -hmm. You, you can't cure it. You can only control it for some people. It's very hard to control, but you don't have to be a hero um, or a warrior or not a not a not a warrior because we I like the warrior yeah. thing, but you know, know you're mean. not fighting yeah. a war. Sorry, yeah. you're not fighting a war with your diabetes. Yeah. But we wage war on cancer. We wage war, or we have waged war on drugs. You know, the war True. on cancer and the war on drugs. So there's something about that that speaks to people at that really 
base level. And, and I, gosh, I want to talk to you forever, but speaking of words, you know, you mentioned Susan Sontag, Audrey Lord, Leslie Mormon Silko, the um, indigenous American author, Raymond Carver, Shakespeare. And like I said, you're, you're educated in literature. That's where you got your PhD. That's where you really, you know, sowed that path Mm -hmm. for yourself. So what's important about the role of literature? You know, we've had William Carlos Williams. We've had a lot of literature written about medicine and healing and health and just stories and in the literary canon that approach illness and healing. What's important about that? Literature is important for clinicians because it can give you a very different window on an illness. And humanities don't get a lot of credit in medical school or nursing school, but but also just in general right now, it's sort of, you know, you should go to school for a practical reason and get a degree that can get you a job. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you can certainly read some novels and poetry along the way because it gives you a unique perspective on the human condition, which is an overused phrase, but I think it's really, really accurate. And so I had a couple days with my cancer where I was in one of the big parks here in Pittsburgh and suddenly started crying. And one of the things that helped get me out of that was remembering a poem by Audre Lorde, who wrote it when she was dying of cancer. And she said, today is not the day. Mm-hmm. Today is today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I could read someone in a textbook talking about, oh, try to reorient cancer patients to the present. You know, what is there in the present moment that could be meaningful to them? There's nothing wrong with saying that. But in her poem, she gets that point across so beautifully and so succinctly, you know, today is not the day. It could be, but it is not. Lovely. I get chills just Mm. repeating those lines to you. So it sort of takes the experience of illness and puts through this prism of art, giving those of us who read it or look at a painting or, or see a play a nuanced understanding that we wouldn't have otherwise. So it can actually make you a better clinician because of seeing this heightened humanity that comes through literature or other creative art forms. Yes. So important. Yeah. Thank you for that. That could be applied to music, dance, theater, yeah. Film as well. So yeah, there's, there's plenty like um, the film Wit with um, it's um, Emma Thompson. Yes. Yeah. That's an incredible film that came from a play. So there's, there's plenty to work with in that particular world. And um, I don't really want to wrap up, but we have to. And, (laughs) and I, um, I always ask uh, guests for questions and it's been really interesting to get the responses to these four questions. Yeah. 
and I beta tested them quite a bit. <laughs> and um, I might actually have to make some sort of audio compendium of some of the responses. So are you game oh, wow. for, for four questions not related to your book? Okay. I am. So the first one, and because this is a this is a career podcast, so to speak, for nurses, but this can you can take this in any direction you want. How do you define the the sense of or the experience of success? personally or professionally? Wow. You know, I'm just going to tell you the first thing that popped into my head, which was happiness. And the second thing was love. Mm. So if I thought about it, that's probably not what I would say, but I'm just going to go with that. That's good. I like that. Yeah. First, the first responses are, are important because that's where our mind first wants to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Before we go into career and, you know, all those other things. Right. right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And the next one is how would you describe one person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead, famous or not famous in any way. I will talk about my aunt Sharon, who mm-hmm. died a few years ago. The book is dedicated to her memory. Uh, my dad's sister, she was one of these people who always put light into the world. She had this great laugh. Um, she could make people feel cared for, and she just made it look so easy. But she was funny. She was down to earth. She worked for the FBI for years and was very down to earth about that. So just, just a great person and a great combination of characteristics, lots of love and generosity and humor. And she lived in St. Louis and actually this week I'm going to, it won't be this week, but um, I'm doing a reading at the St. Louis County public library. So that feels very special. I'm going to get together with one of her daughters and um yeah, she was fabulous. That's nice. Yeah, a lot of people go with family members for this question. Grandmothers. Um, one person mentioned her brother. So that's I like that. Um, now, as I said, you're a literary person. So this might be a hard one for you to answer. So we're not going for a favorite here. But can you just name one book that's had a major impact on the way you think or live your life? And I know you've read countless books, but just one that pops into your head. Uh, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. Oh, yeah. Because she says to write, a woman needs a room of one's own, her own room and money. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm doing this podcast with you in my study. Mm -hmm. That's nice. So that book, yeah, huge, huge in terms of how I think about being a writer. Mm, Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And the last one is, what's a piece of advice you would give 18-year-old Teresa right now, if you could, whether you think she would listen or not? Ah, Don't feel that you have to know the future. It will find you. That's good. Would she listen? (laughs) Probably not. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Most people say they wouldn't listen, but it's worthy of it's worthy of reflection anyway, because maybe someone out there will hear the message. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So I hope you didn't mind those questions. They're oh no, they're, they're fun. They just kind of open a different window, you know? 
yeah. yeah into someone's psyche. Yeah. Not that we're trying to psychoanalyze you or anything. Um, well, Teresa, thank you so much. This is your second time on the show and it won't be your last. And, oh, good. you know, you've been on MSNBC and you've been on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And I can't thank you enough for being on my little nursing podcast. It's just such an honor and privilege. Oh, nothing little about it. And oh, let me, let me just, here, let me make my publicist happy to learn more about me. Go to TeresaBrownRN.com. You can buy healing anywhere books are sold. And I am so happy to be your guest, Keith, and I'm happy to hear I will be your guest again. So well, thank you, Teresa. And that's right. I was going to mention TeresaBrownRN.com and Instagram and Twitter, and that'll all be in the show notes. And yes, please go out and buy the book. I can't recommend it highly enough. And also your other books. So so there. So thank you so much, Teresa. You're so wonderful. You're welcome. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please head over to nursekeith.com for the show notes where you can learn all about Teresa or just go to teresabrownrn.com or go to Amazon and look her up and buy all of her books and copies for your friends and colleagues. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode and please consider taking inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and development. And if you want to become a patron of the podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith, you can pledge as little as $2 a month and it really helps the show. And that's at patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. We are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. I can't thank Dan Kendall and his team enough for having us in the network. It's a great experience and a great network of podcasts. We are produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappiespeason is our social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. And before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes. This one is by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And friend of the pod and my friend and colleague, Teresa Brown, saying arrivederci from... Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Teresa. It's been such an honor. Thank you to everyone for listening, and we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. Thank you.